Turn now to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7, verse 1 through the end of the book. Again, pay attention to God's holy word. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel. And do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos. What do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great 
and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, there shall, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up from Israel the land of Egypt? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. 
I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we come uh, to a long passage, a challenging text with a lot uh, to look at. God, we ask that you would lead us and guide us this morning by your spirit. Help us to see clearly what you would have for us in your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to be a people who are changed by your word. We thank you for the blessings. God of your word, and we ask that you would, again, speak to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your songbooks, I would invite you to turn back to page 30, the song Dawning Light of Our Salvation. As I was Studying this passage this week and, and thinking through some different themes, uh, the, the first line of this song popped into my head. Long in darkness, Israel wandered. Such a fitting description of what's going on in Amos, this wandering of God's people. Long in mortal shadows, we walked in bondage and self-pity, trod in paths of sin and grief. And then this second section of verse one in the prophet's words he told us long the god of israel spoke he alone in strength would save us from the hands of all our foes we see this realization here of of judgment and restoration of of the darkness of, of sin and the judgment of god but then that promise that hope is is just around the corner that god will save his people from their foes and then the chorus is a quote from isaiah chapter 40 which John the Baptist quotes in Luke chapter three concerning the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that every valley will be exalted, every mountain be made plain, crooked ways, repent and straighten all creation, bend in praise. And so there is this forward looking, there is this promise that we see, and then we see it in verse two, this hope fulfilled. We see it in the reality of Jesus' birth, that he will raise a mighty savior born of David's lineage. He comes in covenant love to claim us from our sins to set us free. Light to those who dwell in darkness. Again, it's a, a reminder of the situation that they were in, dwelling in darkness, but God has brought his light. Life to those from death who flee. Joy unto the earth and gladness to your pathways, dawning peace. Obviously, a lot of themes, Advent themes here that we talk about at Christmas time, very fitting with the birth of Christ, his incarnation. But then verse three, again, very fittingly kind of points us forward. As we look to the second coming, Jesus, Lord and mighty Savior, David's son, and yet his king, dawning light of our salvation, of your saving power, we sing. And here we see this reality of things that were promised in part, right, but will not be fully known and experienced until the end. Stand, O lame, and dance, ye broken. Know the Savior's healing grace. Come, O deaf, and hear him singing. Turn, O blind, behold his face. Obviously, Jesus made deaf people hear and made blind people see. He made lame people stand, but he did not do that for everyone. 
who experiences those things, right? There's still this reality of the brokenness of sin, of, of the effects of the fall. And one day, all of these things will be completely overturned. So there is this, again, there is this looking forward in the midst of, of judgment and sin to the first coming of Christ, and then all the way forward to the second coming of Christ when all things will be restored. And what a great song. I think James already had, he already had that song picked out. And so I was like thinking of, about that. And I looked at the worship guide. I was like, oh, yes, awesome. So just wanted to kind of reiterate that. Uh, a lot of those themes that we see are, are here in Amos in our passage. We've seen them throughout Amos so far. Um, God's judgment against sin. He is just. He must deal with our sin. But the reminder of restoration that God is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we have to read the prophets with these two things in mind, with, with judgment, the minor prophets specifically, with this, this judgment and restoration in mind. While we're confronted by a lot of very hard things, God does not want us to just dwell in our sin and just sit around feeling bad about ourselves all the time. We must read these things with an awareness of our sin. Yes, we must be willing and able to see ourselves and our own sin in those who are addressed, the people of Israel who are addressed here by the prophets. But we must also see ourselves as recipients of these great promises, the promises of hope that God is merciful, that he desires to restore us to a right relationship with himself. So today's text is a really great example of these truths. Again, there is a lot of judgment, uh, like there has been in the previous six chapters, but the ending of Amos is fantastic. We'll get to that. We're going to walk through these judgments first, which occur in from chapter 7 uh, to the first half of chapter 9 by the way of visions that God gave to Amos. And I want to remind us here, we've talked about this a little bit, that the prophets are not primarily these mystical visionaries, they're not primarily future tellers. Now, of course, there are places where God gives his prophets visions. We might think of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the throne room of heaven with the seraphim uh, and the confession of sin that happens. Ezekiel with his uh, visions of the temple, his vision of the valley of dry bones. These are very profound images, profound things that happen. When we get to Zechariah, there are a lot of visions in Zechariah. There are some visions in Daniel. But the prophets, again, are not primarily these visionary future tellers. They are primarily mouthpieces of the Lord who declare God's word to God's people. And sometimes, like here in Amos, they do that by way of visions that the Lord gave to them. In Amos here, there are five visions from chapter 7 through chapter 9, and there are of increasing intensity. Uh, the first two visions parallel each other. The third and fourth visions parallel each other. And then there is a fifth and final vision in chapter nine. And again, we'll walk through these visions. In the middle of it, in chapter seven, there is also this narrative section describing Amos's interaction with Am Amaziah the priest, which is a little bit of a, a unique uh, section here. And again, as we've also reminded and, and said over these weeks, while some of this is going to feel very far away from our lives today because of uh, the historical and cultural differences, we need to, to keep in mind and remember that 
these things have been recorded for us by God and by his spirit. He wants us to both hear and learn from these things today, what he might have for us from these truths. So again, let's let's pay attention. Let's see ourselves in uh, the truths of this text. These first two visions here in chapter seven parallel each other. You can see the structure very clearly in verses one through six, how they are kind of offset here. There is a description of the vision, verse one and verse four. This is what the Lord God showed me. We see the introduction of the vision. The first vision is of locusts devouring the grass. The second vision is of the judgment of fire devouring the sea and the land. So locusts devouring the grass, like something that's pretty, you know, pretty standard probably in different seasons. We might think about like mayflies and Oshkosh, right? Like coming and devouring our cars and our houses. Like they're just covered by mayflies. So, so those things are maybe cyclical and it wouldn't be that unique. Uh, but the fire coming and devouring the land and devouring the sea, that's a little bit more intense than this, these locusts coming. And then in both of these cases, we have this intercession from Amos. In the first case with the locusts, in verse 2, he says, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And in the case of the fire, O Lord God, verse 5, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And then there is a common response in verse 3 and verse 6. The Lord relents. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. That word relent could also be translated as repent. Well, what does this mean? Does God change his mind? Is he some capricious deity who can be manipulated and bribed into not doing what he said he was going to do? Well, no, obviously not. This is consistent with what we have seen in other places in scripture. It's what we see in Exodus chapter 34 after the golden calf incident and Moses intercedes for the people so that God would not destroy them. Similar to what we see in the book of Jonah, where God says that after 40 days, he's going to destroy the city unless there is repentance. Finally, Jonah gets his butt to Nineveh and obeys God and preaches the message and people repent and God does not destroy the city as he had said he would do. Now this is a reminder of the importance of prayer. It's a reminder of the importance of God's people seeking him. And it's an encouragement that God does hear our prayers. One commentator puts it like this. He says, for both ministers and church members, prayer on behalf of others is an essential means of ministry. Because the Lord has chosen to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people, we must never believe that our intercessory prayers are offered in vain. We should instead be encouraged to pray boldly for the lost as we plead with God on behalf of those who need to turn to him. This is probably a great reminder for us at this time of year. As we're preparing to gather with family members and friends who need our prayers, who need the forgiveness and the mercy of God, we must never believe that our intercessory prayers are offered in vain. And this can be hard to believe after years and years of praying 
for someone, maybe praying for a loved one or a friend and not seeing any visible change. But don't give up. God has been patient with you and I. And he's been merciful and gracious to you and I. How can we not pray that he would show that same patience and that same mercy and grace to others? Now, in Israel's case here in Amos, although they did not get the full wrath of God that was coming to them, it does not mean that they were totally off the hook. We see that in the end, or we see that here in the third vision, in beginning in verse 7. This is what the Lord showed me again, the same refrain. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, a plumb line, sometimes called a plumb bob, is something that is used in construction. It is a string that hangs down with a weight on it. The weight is called a bob. And this weight is used to determine if the wall is straight. If, the, if you hang this, this weight, it's got a point on the end. If you hang it from the top of a wall, it will hang exactly down to the point vertically where, where it's hanging on the top. And you'll be able to tell if it is straight or not. Uh, now, these plumb lines or plumb bobs are not used as much today in construction with the invention of bubble levels, which are amazing uh, inventions, uh, but it really has the same purpose. When I used to work construction uh, back in high school and college, and we built houses, you always had to make sure that your walls were straight. Uh, we didn't pour the foundations, the concrete companies would come in and do that, but we would come in and then we would build the, the initial floor uh, well, basement, we'd build basement walls first, and then we would build the, the floor, the main floor on top of that. And then as you keep going, you're building your walls. You don't just put up a wall and just throw it up and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll figure out later if it's straight or not. No, you put that wall up and you put braces on to hold that in place and the supporting walls. And you're constantly having to check for level because everything that you do depends on those walls being straight. If those walls are off, then if it's if you're putting another floor up on top of that, things are going to be off. If you're putting, a, if you're putting joist, uh, rafters on top of that for, for your roof, those things are going to be off if your walls are off. Uh, imagine a, a wall leaning and trying to put a door into that opening, right? Your door is going to swing open on its own and it's, it will never close right. So having walls straight in a building is absolutely foundational uh, to the whole structure coming together in the way that it needs to. And the Lord here is accusing Israel of being a crooked wall. And the consequences of their crookedness are seen in verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The high places here are a reference to their idol worship. They had built these Places which God had not uh, told them to build, and they had went and worshipped idols there. The sanctuaries that they had built, God says they will be laid waste, and then their kingdom will be destroyed. The house of Jeroboam, he will come against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, can you imagine being on the receiving end of this type of message? What type of response might there have been? We don't have to imagine. We're told right here in verses 10 through 17. 
Again, this is a very interesting section here. It seems a little bit oddly placed given what we have seen so far in Amos. There hasn't been any narrative sections yet, but here we see a response to the Lord's message through Amos about God rising against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Amaziah, the priest, sends a message to King Jeroboam telling him what Amos has said regarding the end of the kingdom and of their coming exile. Then he tells, Amaziah tells Amos to go home to Judah. Remember, Amos is from the southern kingdom. He has come up to the northern kingdom to prophesy. He tells him, go home and stop prophesying. Stop ruffling our feathers, right? Stop getting in our business. Get out of here. And Amos's response in verses 14 and 15 is great. He essentially says to Amaziah, look, I wasn't trying to be a prophet. This was not what I was aspiring to do. I was minding my own business when God called me and sent me to proclaim his word. So there is this reminder of the authority of Amos, that it's not something that he didn't make up this message on his own. He's, he has been sent by the Lord. And then notice the contrast in verses 16 and 17. He te- Amos tells Amaziah to hear the word of the Lord. He says, you say, saying to Amaziah, you say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. We could probably put a but here, right? But the Lord says, right? Verse 17, but therefore, therefore, thus says the Lord. The message to Amaziah here is devastating. You kind of can think of this in concentric circles, starting with his closest relationship. His wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. Here is a priest who is to be pure and holy before God, and he is now going to die in an unclean land. And Israel as a whole shall surely go into exile away from its land. Again, this is a devastating judgment upon those who oppose God here. And this transitions into the fourth vision in chapter 8, which parallels the plumb line vision. This vision here is of a basket of summer fruit. The Lord showed Amos a basket of summer fruit. And there is a play on words here because the word for summer fruit sounds like the word for end. If you look at uh, verse 2, the word end there, the end has come upon my people. There's a footnote you'll see in the ESV. It says the Hebrew word for end and summer fruit sound alike. The summer fruit probably had no necessary significance in this vision, except that when the people heard it, they would have known when he said summer fruit and said end, oh, the end is coming. That's why uh, there was the summer fruit. We see this phrase here uh, in verse two that says, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. This is the same word that is used for the Passover. It's that imagery of uh, Egypt and Exodus where God passed over his people. He, He did not judge his people when the blood of the lamb was placed over the doorpost. God had mercy on his people. And now he says, I will not do that 
anymore. I will not pass over them. I will surely judge them. And we see what that judgment looks like. Verse three, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. And then God says, silence. I no longer want to hear your songs or your empty words. It is time for them to listen up. Verse four, hear this. We saw that last week, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, all begin with the phrase, hear the word of the Lord. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. This accusation here is consistent with what we've seen throughout Amos, a mistreatment of the poor and needy because of their greed. They bring the poor of the land to an end saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a piece of sandals, for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. They are saying, when, when can we be done with this festival where we are prohibited from selling our goods when will the sabbath be over right when can we get back to our own greedy ways the niv uh, has kind of a, a good translation of um making the ephah small and the shekel great it says skimping the measure and boosting the price they're making the the measure of the things being sold smaller and they're making the price greater so that they can get more money this is at the heart of the injustice in the land. The people are profiting through dishonesty at the expense of their neighbors. And God will have none of it. The end has come. See the language here in verses 9 and 10. On that day, God says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Turn the feasts into mourning, songs into lamentation sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. What does this language make you think of? The plagues in Egypt, right? The ninth plague was darkness on the land. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn son. This is interesting here because this is something that would have been, the people of God would have thought about and rejoiced in that God did to their enemies. And now God is saying, these judgments are coming upon you because of the way that you have dealt deceitfully with your neighbor. This would never have been imagined by Israel in a million years that God would take those judgments that he had on his enemies and now turn them on him. And it gets worse. Verses 11 and 12, God promises a famine. And he will send a famine on the land. But notice, it's not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They would have been familiar with a famine of bread and water. Again, these cyclical things. There, there would have been times where this would have been the case. But now, the famine is going to be of hearing the words of the Lord. God has been speaking for generations through his prophets. Through Abraham, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, Isaiah, 
but his people have not listened. And look at verse 12. Even though they should wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they should run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They will not find it. This was not only true of the northern kingdom as they were exiled in Assyria and the southern kingdom as they were exiled in Babylon. But even after the southern kingdom returned to the land, there was a 400-year period of silence from the end of Malachi until John the Baptist came proclaiming the arrival of Jesus. This famine of hearing the words of the Lord was fulfilled during, specifically during that 400-year period of silence and of darkness. By the grace of God, he is not silent to us today. He has given us his word and his spirit that we might hear his voice. Jesus is the great shepherd who said that his sheep know him and they hear his voice and they follow him. But that doesn't mean that we can take this for granted. God's people had his word in Amos's day. They had the message of the prophets. But like Amaziah and Jeroboam, they didn't want to hear it. Notice that the famine is of hearing the words of the Lord. It's not a famine of the word of the Lord. God is not silent. Are we listening? Are we hearing? Are we seeking him in his word in order that we might know him more? That we might understand our propensity like the Israelites of old to trust in ourselves and the things that we have accomplished for ourselves with our own hands. That we might see how we mistreat our neighbors and we dishonor God. We are not immune to these struggles today and we need God's help to see and to hear clearly. That means reading our Bibles on our own, being students of God's word, but also gathering corporately for worship. Not just to hear the preacher unpack the glories of God's word, but to sing it and to pray it and to walk through the liturgy as we confess our sins and as we are reminded by God and his word that our sins are pardoned if we trust in Christ. Our lives, brothers and sisters, need to be saturated with God's word because everything in here, in our flesh, and everything out there, the world and the devil, wants to cover our ears, right? Wants to plug our ears, wants to cover our eyes so that we don't hear and we don't see what God has done for us in Christ. So as we've still got five months left in the Minor Prophets, some of you are saying, oh, great. <laughs> Let us be receptive to what God would have for us. Even though there are some very challenging passages still to come, like the first 10 verses of chapter 9. This is Amos's fifth and final vision, and it is jarring. He sees the Lord standing beside the altar or potentially on top of the altar in the temple. And here is the message. <clears throat> Strike the capitals, it's the upper pieces, until the thresholds, the lower pieces shake. So there's, we're going to start to see this contrast between these things that are high and these things that are low. 
shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. So saying, if they're not killed by this destruction of the temple, they will be killed with the sword. They will not be able to flee or escape. The imagery here in verses 2 through 4 is striking. Notice the repetition here. If they, and then followed by these different verbs, if they dig, okay, if they go down, if they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, right, if they go up high, from there I will bring them down. So we see Sheol low and heaven high. These are God talking about the spiritual realm. Verse three, if they hide themselves high, if they go on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. So you saw Sheol in heaven, the spiritual realm. If they try to spiritually hide from me, I will find them. Now, if they try to physically hide from me on the top of Carmel or in the bottom of the sea, I will find them, right? They cannot hide from me. So physically and spiritually, we cannot hide from God. We cannot escape from him. This is a strong reminder here of God's omnipresence. Similar to those great words of David in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. David asks, where shall I go? from your spirit or where shall i flee from your presence if i ascend to heaven you are there if i make my bed in sheol the spiritual realm right high and low you are there if i take the wings of the morning if i fly high or if i dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea physically even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me notice in Amos, these things are speaking of judgment. Here, David is speaking of comfort, of God being with him. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Kind of that imagery we're going to see at the end of Revelation 22. We cannot hide from our omnipresent God. This is good news. Then we see God's omnipotence in verses 5 through 10 as his power over nature and over the nations is described. I want to focus specifically on verses 8 through 10. The Lord in verse 8 promises to destroy the sinful kingdom, Israel. But notice the last line in verse 8. It says in the middle, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There is still hope. That is seen in this image in verse 9. Israel will be shaken in a sieve, but there will be a remnant that will be saved. There will be this, these pebbles. This pebble will not fall to the earth. That is a picture of the chaff being blown away, but the pebbles remaining. That is this remnant of the people. Verse 10 is speaking of that. The sinner's Uh, shall die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Those in their pride who say, we're good, right? We're good. We like, we're not going to, God has said all these things are going to happen, but they won't happen to us. God says, no, they will. The judgment will come 
upon those who despise him and who do not take his word seriously. But that there will be that remnant. And now, finally, after eight and a half chapters of judgment, finally, some good news. Now, James and I have both concluded our sermons the last two weeks with Hosea 9, or Amos 9, 11 through 15. So three weeks in a row, ending with this great promise of a future hope. Notice the language in verse 11 and 13, starting with the 11. In that day, and then verse 13, behold, the days are coming. We saw the exact same wording in chapter 8, but it was about destruction. Here we see the total reversal. What is God going to do? In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen versus destroying it. I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it at the end as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. This is speaking of of the nations, of the Gentiles, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And we saw last week how these verses here are quoted in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, which is speaking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. What we saw there is this decision that they are not going to force the Gentile people to be circumcised in order to be counted among the people of God. They say that they will be saved. The Gentiles will be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, just as we have been. So saying God does not make a distinction between peoples in that way. This text here in Amos is pointing forward to that great truth. God is going to use Israel. He's going to use the restoration of his people to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. That was always to be their calling. Look at verses 13 through 15. This is a picture of abundant prosperity. The days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. It means there's going to be so much abundance that they'll, they're just, this is a picture of just this continuing flow of, of production that they can't, even, they can't even keep up. The mountains will drip with wine. The hills shall flow with it. God will restore the fortunes of his people. They'll rebuild the ruined cities. They'll inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. God will plant them in the land and they will never be uprooted again. So as we look at this, the question is, when and how will these things be fulfilled? And then what does that have to do with us today? Well, we have to think here about the already and the not yet. The already is the Christmas story. It's Jesus' first coming when these things were fulfilled in part. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. Such a glorious declaration of who God is and what he has done for his people. Notice here the language that is very similar to what we see in Amos. Notice the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to his people. 
starting in verse 46, chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Notice now these, these promises, these Old Testament promises that get fulfilled. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We see here the reversal of the curses, right? And the judgments of the Old Testament that God has, he has spoke. He's, he's fulfilling his promises in remembrance of his mercy. And so in this in-between, right? Between Christ's first and second coming, these things are continuing to be fulfilled as the nations are being gathered in as God shows mercy to lost sinners and gathers people into his family. But then we have the not yet. This is the reason we celebrate Advent. Not only to look back at the first coming of Christ, but to look forward to his second coming. Our New Testament reading was from Revelation chapter 22. I would invite you to turn there. Revelation 21 and 22 describe the final restoration of all things. The things that are described in Amos 9, 11 through 15. God dwelling with his people in the new heaven and the new earth, making all things new. The vision that John sees at the beginning of 22 is familiar, isn't it? What does this list here remind us of? He's shown a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This reminds us of the Garden of Eden, right? This is a restoration. This is a picture back to the very beginning. The healing of the nations is what Amos 9 is pointing to. This restoration when people are called to God and brought in from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Last week, we read this in Amos 5, 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. That was speaking of the day of judgment. This is the day of restoration and hope here in Revelation 22, 5. Look with me at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's a great picture of the restoration, of the reversal of judgment. Darkness is no more. God is our light forever and ever. And the rest of this chapter is a reminder that Jesus is coming soon. Similar to Amos, there are warnings of judgment. Look at verse 12. 
Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is a fitting end to the book of Revelation, right? We've seen judgment after judgment, all, all of these different visions and judgments and, and death and destruction. And Jesus is saying, I am coming back and I am coming with judgment. But there is this hopeful picture here in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Do we have clean robes? We saw this earlier in Revelation chapter 7, where it speaks of those whose robes are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, what an odd picture that is. When we think about blood, we think about blood staining, right? You get a nosebleed on your shirt, and it's like, oh, shoot, that's going to stain, right? Especially if you're wearing a white shirt. We don't think about blood cleaning something that is white. But the blood of Jesus is our ticket to enter the city by the gates and to obtain access to the tree of life where we'll be, we will be fed by God forever. What a great parallel that is to this table. And great reminder from Amos that instead of a famine of bread and wine, we get an abundant meal. As we come to this table, we get fed abundantly. Now, clearly, this little piece of bread that we tear off and this little cup of wine and juice is not going to fill us and satisfy us physically. You're not going to go home and say, well, I don't need to eat lunch now because I had the Lord's Supper and I am physically filled. But it is a great picture of the spiritual reality of what God has done for us in Christ. We come and we do not have a famine of bread and wine. We have an abundance, a spiritual abundance. This table is for all of those who say, I need to be fed. I am hungry. My soul is thirsting and longing for Jesus, and my hope is found in him alone. If that's you, if you have confessed your sins, if you are baptized, and if you're in good standing in a gospel preaching church, we would invite you to come to this table. I want us to take some time before we do that, and as I invite those who are serving to come down, take some time to search our hearts, examine ourselves before we come to the table. And then I will pray and invite us to come forward. We were where we will take the elements, we'll return to our seats. And we will all partake together.